Hello, ladies. Welcome to the Hourly to Exit podcast. I'm your host, Erin Austin. My goal with every episode is to share information and resources to help you achieve the next level of growth in your expertise-based business. We all know generating income from our expertise is pretty easy. The challenge is in scaling and building a business that can run without you. Join me here every week to make sure you are building an asset that can be used to fund your goals and your legacy. Before we get started though, one little disclaimer, because I'm a lawyer. The information I share on the podcast is general in nature and is provided for information purposes only. It is not to be relied upon nor construed as providing legal advice or legal opinions about any specific issue or set of facts. Now, here we go. All right. Welcome to the Hourly to Exit podcast. I'm your host, Erin, and I am so happy to have Natalie Gingrich with me today. Hello, Natalie. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Erin. It's awesome to be here. I am so happy to have you with me. It's, it's going to be a great episode talking about certification licensing programs, something we talk about all the time here, and I'm really looking forward to digging into it. But before we get started, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, I'm Natalie. And something that's always fun to know is where these people live, right? Because we hear them, but we don't know all the background and all the dirt on them. So um, a little bit about me from San Antonio, Texas, and have spent the last seven years in my own entrepreneurial journey, really honing in and using the gifts that I innately have, but also on top of that, really coupled with the experience that I had in my 15 year corporate experience as well. So all that means that I got here by leveraging my operational skills, which sounds super nerdy and unattractive, but believe it or not, they're desirable. (laughs) And there's a large contingency specifically of females who have the opportunity to use these as well. So I've taken all of those experiences and I've spent seven years in this phase of my, I call it Natalie (laughs) 3.0. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah. And in getting to the point where I was able to take that intellectual property, boil it down and create a certification program. We certify, train and mentor directors of operations to really build a career and a business around those skill sets that they likely have taken for granted for a whole, maybe even many, many professions before this. So that brings us to today. Yeah. I can sympathize with trying to make what we talk about sexy. <laughs> I have that Ooh, licensing is sexy, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but it can be. <laughs> so tell me, you, you mentioned DOO, director of operations. What is a director of operations? Like, what do they do? Yeah. Awesome. Let's just start at what operations is. Sometimes that's a a term that not a lot of people have heard. And even for myself in my 15 years of corporate experience, operations was a little different than the way that we are seeing it being used today. Operations was very logistical in the corporate organization that I came from. And when you kind of zoom out and and maybe you have a different understanding of it from what my corporate experience was, but when I came into small business operations, again, for small business, you're running leaner teams, you're running smaller operations and sometimes even more meaningful and passionate filled operations and businesses. 
your operations are a lot wider than just logistics and some of those pieces that I had attached to them beforehand. But when we look at operations today, we're really looking at five disciplines specific to small and online businesses. And that's the operational strategy. You're looking at human resources, which is a huge discipline underneath, but we'll just summarize it there project management, data, and financial. So those five disciplines fall underneath operations. And all five of those are desperately and significantly needed in any size of business. If you're a solopreneur or if you are you know, in corporate America, those are all disciplines that have to be a part of what you do and how you perform, how your business is stood up. When I came into the online space, I was really helping businesses in all of those. And Aaron, I didn't know that I had anything different than the next person. I have a background in my corporate experience afforded me the opportunity to work in human resources and project management for that time period. But even those were very siloed disciplines inside of corporate America, because frankly, you just have a lot more resources in large organizations like that. When I translated that into small businesses, I started to see how we can't afford in businesses like mine and yours, we could not afford somebody to be a discipline owner of those five disciplines because mm-hmm. you still have another whole side of your business, which is marketing, right? right. So, you know, I, I boiled all of that into one role, an incredibly impactful role and I started out as a project manager, managing one project and businesses would keep me on and I would give them value in their entire organization. And I just was doing what I always did. Mm -hmm. And I apprised that and really pulled that back into my corporate experience because, you know, even though I was working in one discipline, they were all very cross-functional and the Mm -hmm. skills of an operator are all very cross-functional getting to, to answer the question of what is a director of operations, they leverage those five skill sets and hard skill training areas and pull them into one person, come and sit next to, from a strategic level and a strategic partnership, they sit next to the CEO and the visionary to help the visionary in the business to scale faster, to be more profitable, to optimize, to find efficiencies. That's what a director of operations does. There's many different levels of an operator and arguably they're all very, very important. You know, you can have an operations coordinator, an operations manager, and honestly, there are so many different terms for what these people do. I have landed on a director of operations to show the significance at the strategic level, but also the breadth of not just being a project manager and not just being an HR manager, pulling all of that together at the strategic level. That's what makes a director of operations. Yeah. Yeah. I I can confirm to the audience. I mean, I have a brilliant head of operations that Natalie brought to me, who is DOO trained and certified by the Ops Authority. And I never imagined that all those aspects would come like in as a solopreneur that I would need. But it is absolutely true that all these pieces are very important. You you really don't even think about how much more value and ease you can get out of your business when you have all these pieces in place. You know, I like many lawyers. We don't think in terms of systems, you know, we kind of think in terms of, you know, what we know and, and our precedent, things like that, but systems are not kind of at the forefront of what we do. And so having someone to help put those pieces in place has made, made a huge difference, I can say, in my business. And we are going to talk a little bit later about the value of DOOs in businesses, but I want to start with talking about your business 
first from kind of a high level perspective about like why you started your business. And there's a couple of things that I have noticed. I mean, you did mention that you mostly work with women. And so one, and that was my experience, all the DOs I've come across are women. Now, was that intentional? Is there something inherently feminine about DOOs? And do you see any shifts around that? Excellent question. And I cannot wait to go into this because no one's really ever asked me that. But when I left corporate, there was just a lot of internal work. I had the opportunity to restart work on my terms. And when I had that opportunity, I dug deep and I really looked to see like, what would it look like for me to be fulfilled? And when I had the opportunity to restart, I did it purely from a place of legacy. I didn't have a big, you know, significant dollar amount that equated success to me. I really wanted to be able to be available for my children in a different way and still at the same time contribute financially to our household. But I did not have crazy expectations of making $5 billion or six figures or any of the things that we are commonly equating to success. I wanted to do this in the way that was most authentic to me. And you don't have those opportunities when you work for a larger institution And so I wanted to do it different. And I initially was attracted to working with women who were course creators in the online space. And that was completely foreign to me. I didn't even know that this was an opportunity or a business that was just booming. I had no idea when I was in corporate that this was happening. And so I fell into working alongside and being a partner to people when I was doing this in a one-to-one capacity, the people who leveraged me best and most often were females. And so, you know, I think that's where it organically was created. You know, some people will say, oh, I bet you were just sick and tired of the male energy that happens in corporate. And to no surprise, it was actually the females that made it way harder than the males, but we'll save that for a different day. So that's who I was working with. And in the online space in general, I was finding that it was easier for me to talk to and to educate and to partner with women. And so I work with people for a long time and I was not exclusive to working with females. I just found that there was better energy and and ease about it when I was working with other females. And over time, when it came time for me to take my intellectual property and do something with it, again, I got to redefine what what looked good and felt good to me at that moment. And I continued down the path of working with females. And here is why it's not because males cannot be operators. Actually in my corporate experience, most of my peers were males, they weren't females, but I will say that when I started to stand this up myself, I loved the community aspect of what we were doing. And I don't want to get super woo here, but there was energetically something about the way that I knew I was going to build this business around community, around support, around mentorship. And if I was going to be, let's call it the chief mentor, the head mentor, I knew who I mentored easiest and best. And so I put some parameters on myself, which, you know, I'm sure every coach I've ever had is like, why do you do that? You could make so much more money, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And maybe that's the case. And we've had so many men who apply, who want to join us and they would possibly be phenomenal fits. It just breaks the energy and the confidence and the leadership training that we're providing when we, you know, when we, when we distract ourselves with that. So Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's, that's the long story as to why we have built this around females. I also know that from my own 
really like heart to heart. It is the females and my peers in our gender that don't see the value that they can bring to other Mm -hmm. people. They also don't see their innate gifts as easily. And I'm not here to figure that whole (laughs) psychological piece out, but I know that it's been a tremendous, I mean, the success that we have brought people and brought women who just didn't see themselves um, or hold themselves in the same way has been just life-changing for us. Yeah, that is fantastic. I mean, we share that very much. I mean, part of my purpose in my journey with working with female founders of service-based businesses is because so often like they're not thinking about building that value in their business. I mean, we can make a very comfortable income just selling our time, right? But we're not building anything. And so educating women, I mean, I don't too many times, you know, I am in groups of women who are like, I never even thought about that. I never thought about I could build a business to sell. I never thought that there could be assets in my business. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and there is an education around that and empowerment around that, which is part of why we do what we do, which is great. Yes. Yes. All right. So let us talk about your certification program. So what was happening in your business when you decided to do this? I hear you were doing the one-on-one work. Mm -hmm. You had a framework, Mm -hmm. like how did you decide this is where the next level would be? Right. I had built a framework early. I mean, as soon as I left corporate and started kind of working with these businesses, I came in as a project manager working on one project. So I was really just utilizing the project management skills. And I had already mentioned businesses would be like, well, wait, you're doing this so well. Like you're actually looking at a budget. We've never had a budget for anything in my business and you're managing the team so well. Like, do you think that you could take on another project and another project? And so before you knew it, I was fully encompassed into the business and really at the driver's seat. And so there's a whole lot of lessons that went into this because I didn't initially position myself as a director of operations. I was really just like a bleeding heart showing up to serve clients, which I love about the core of me. But at the same time, it took some time to get to the place where I even saw that I had intellectual property that would be valuable to somebody else. So there's a lot of coaching that I'm sure you could look back on my journey and be like, yes, not, (laughs) but So then I came in at this higher level and I got to work with, I mean, dozens and dozens of phenomenal businesses and those people, those leaders that I was working with were having conferences and masterminds and whatnot. And so as organic networking traditionally happens, you know, I found myself having the opportunity to be able to speak to large groups, being on stages, this is pre pandemic. So Mm -hmm. travel was a totally different, you know, actually business was quite different at that point too. Marketing was very different too. So I think in 2019, I spoke on 19 stages and that, yes, I mean, life was completely different. (laughs) Now I think I've spoke on three in the last (laughs) so many years. So, but when I had the opportunity to do that, it really opened up the floodgates of helping women or business owners to see that they could use this support and then where to find it. Well, that generated just a plethora of leads for me. However, (laughs) there was a capacity thing. And remember, I was doing this from a legacy perspective. My very busy kids sports life does not lend me to having just a ton of clients. So I started to think, you know what, I'm going to put this into a course because people are coming to me and they're asking me, Natalie, I need a Natalie. Where do I find a Natalie? And I hadn't run across a lot of people who had a super similar background to me or the same skill sets that I have, but I did find a lot of people who were eager to use parts and pieces of it. 
So I was like, you know what? I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to create a course and I'm an operator. I'm not a marketer. And so when it came down to it, I did a lot of work into figuring out how I could put this into a course. And that's a fun experience that we could probably jam on for another hour. But I put that into a course and had an absolute beast of a time trying to sell the thing because I'm not a marketer. We had a couple people buy it and I received great feedback. The hard part was that I would then like connect people and say, oh, Aaron, you're looking for somebody. Well, here's this person who has purchased this course. And I had never interacted. It was truly a quote unquote passive product. So I didn't know the people that were coming in. There was no qualifications mm -hmm. for them to come in here. And so Aaron, who is trusting me as a peer to say, Hey, Nat, who do you have? I wouldn't necessarily match y'all, but I would say, Hey, Aaron's looking for somebody. Hey, here are these five people, Aaron, y'all go figure it out. So I wouldn't necessarily have massive ownership, but I was making a recommendation in jest and I have a very empathetic soul. So Aaron, as a peer would come back and say, you know what? You matched me with Sally. And at the end of the day, Sally didn't do this. She didn't know this. She was whatever. Well, I felt terrible for both Sally and Aaron who are now in this partnership or trying to unwind out of this partnership and, you know, money is spent heart time. You know, all that stuff is really valuable and even more so valuable in a small business when resources are very thin. So I went to work with, again, how to solve that problem because people are still coming to me at this point. I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? So the course model didn't feel good to me, both from an experience perspective, a sales mechanism, and also it didn't solve the problem of how can I recommend strong people to this contingency of women and people who want an operator in their business. So that's when a very wise friend of mine said, have you ever considered certification? we were at an event and I was sitting on a bus. We were going to dinner and I, my mind exploded. I could barely think for the next two days at the conference, because I knew that that was, when I say ticket, I don't mean in a financial way. I knew that I was actually going to solve the problem that had been just itching me for the last two years. And it allowed me to have qualifications up front to really present a curriculum that I could control and mm -hmm. then provide an experience where people could really have a transformation so that they could stand up and utilize this information in a way that could be transformational and, and helpful for them and their legacies, which ultimately mm -hmm. is the biggest driver I have. Wow. That is amazing. I did not realize you started with a course, although that doesn't surprise me. So one of the problems that, you know, we hear about courses is just, it's not only, you know, the ultimate client who has the problem, but the person who buys the course, like getting through it, really understanding it when it's complicated and long, were you having troubles also just with people being able to comprehend the material, much less the issues that the ultimate clients were having? <laughs> this is a great interview because I don't get asked these questions very often, but I come from corporate. And so when you just said that, something that triggered me was people would come back to me and say, I loved it. However, I didn't understand a lot of it. And I really boil it down to having that corporate strategic think and brain and speak. And that wasn't common for the people that were joining me. And it really came down again to, I wasn't looking at who was joining me. So I had, right. there was no qualification of this is going to be right for you, or this is going to be wrong for you, which from a transaction perspective felt really bad for me. It was like, right. Natalie, I'm taking people's money and they can't use it. But then on the other side, when they're coming back to me, it's like, 
well, now I almost needed like a mastermind or coaching sessions to actually help them to bring that to neutral. And honestly, I wasn't really a good course creator either. I didn't really know how to teach people. I didn't know how to break this material down. I was really downloading this, you know, 15 years of experience and four degrees into something that I just didn't have Mm -hmm. the instructional design to be able to deliver it in a way that was going to be best used. Just so everybody knows that course has come off the market as soon as possible. I think we sold it 16 times and tie that baby up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no doubt it's informed your certification program. So it wasn't uh, for for not. Mm-hmm. So I am going to ask you to kind of go step-by-step step from, you know, that two days, was it that you said you couldn't think about anything else until where you get to today? Like kind of just how did it happen? Yeah. So the course itself was really just one very small piece. It's what we have licensed as our strategic mapping model. That's all I was teaching in the course. And mm-hmm. so that you know, through time, I was like, when we stood up the certification, that was not enough. That was not going to give my students or the end user, which is you, which is the employer really exactly what I was doing. And so we built out that curriculum and we added on the strategic mapping model is the very first part, which has now become eight other modules that Mm -hmm. support this. And so we start looking at those hard disciplines, the HR, the project management, data financials, all of those. Um, So I went to building out the curriculum in, you know, a really in-depth way and we've never stopped adding to it. We won't stop adding and refining to it. And we started with our first, with our beta round, and that was in 2018. And, you know, that informed a lot of what we would be doing moving forward that from there, we do this in a cohort style. So it's not an evergreen product. That is something that doesn't authentically feel good to me. I love having controlled sizes of groups. I never anticipate being in business without having a one-to-one connection with the students because I really value that. I know I would make a lot more money doing it in a different way, but it wouldn't feel good to me. And that Mm -hmm. that's what's most important to me. So we have delivered this. We've built out a full team around it, Erin. There's a delivery team and an operations team that does a lot of the program coordination, but our delivery team, we have coaches in addition to myself that are disciplined experts in all of the areas that we've talked about today. We also have a support team, accountability advisors, and that's been an evolution. Like we didn't pop out with all of that. I didn't have the financial means to do that either. So um, what was your first step? What was step number one? Yeah. I built the curriculum and I delivered everything. I supported every student individually. Mm -hmm. It was very organic. I mean, we actually Mm -hmm. taught some of this live for the first time. It wasn't in a beautiful studio and all of that. We went to curriculum and I, I did everything myself. Like, like you do when you're first starting out. Did you already have an audience who's ready for this waiting for this? Maybe. Mm -hmm. I still don't really have a very big audience to be honest, Mm -hmm. definitely smaller than most people would anticipate, but you know, it's, it's a hard audience to get a hold of because the, you know, the VA market, the OBM market is, is very big, much bigger than mine, but I'm really looking for the tip top of those audiences. And so, you know, we have lots of connections with them, but no, I did not have a very big audience at all. I think my email list was like 700 people at that time, which I had already poured five years into, but you know, my audience had changed several times because I went from being a one-to-one service provider to looking for my peers of service providers. And so that shift was interesting and something we still put a lot of effort into. And you mentioned control. 
So how much control do you have regarding, I mean, obviously you have requirements in order to qualify for the certification at all, mm-hmm. plus some standards that they must meet, I assume, to continue to be certified after they finish. Like how much control do you have over them? Legally, through my legal journey of getting to certification, getting some of the trademarks, getting the license set up for us, there had to be some pieces that were set in place. And we look at graduation requirements and that really didn't come along, Erin, until probably the third or fourth round. We're now at round 15. So it feels like a long time ago, but it it isn't, but it took us some time. It took us a few iterations to kind of get a grasp of what success look like. We know some of the stats of, you know, percentage of completion and courses and stuff, but this was a whole different experience because we were walking students through, we continue to walk students through every single step. And so we put some graduation requirements in place. We have actually expanded those with more cohorts that have gone through. We continue to look back and to see what that looks like. The other piece that I have spent a significant amount of time and passion around is the acceptance requirements, the application requirements, because there's actually a lot of metrics that go into who is right for this. I want to make sure the people who are joining me are going to be qualified DOOs. I don't want them giving me money and me feeling bad about them not having success. And so the way for me to protect myself is, and this is the emotional part, not legally, but was to put some requirements in place upfront from the application so that I could do as good of a job as I know to attract the right people. And to, when I say repel, to guide them on a different path, anyone who doesn't qualify, we have some partner programs that we can refer them to, but we continue to do a lot of work to see who's the best person and seeing what kind of data we can get from them to get them to qualify, to come in. And then we have graduation requirements. Over time, looking at those graduation requirements, we have looked at milestones. And so we have put some milestones in place to help us as a coaching team to direct and coach them to the path, which we see as the greatest success for them. And all of that has been really valuable. And I believe it helps us to have really high success rates too. Yeah. And that's super important. I mean, whether it is, you know, uh, application requirements or the way that we vet our clients if we're in, you know, a service provider, making sure it's a good fit. Like mm-hmm. if it's not a good fit, no one's going to be happy. The client's not going to be happy. Students not going to be happy. It will just be a poor result all around. So that makes, makes a lot of sense. And so does community make a big part of it? Like after they graduate, are they continue to be part of a community? And, and I know Annie who, who's working for me, like she always has a resources that she can pull on, uh, when we have questions. Yes, that's, I mean, community is such a big piece going through it and they're with their cohort. It's about a six month program. So when they graduate, we move them into their alumni group, which kind of re-sparks the energy for community again, because now they're, you know, going from, you know, 20 to 40 into a group of, you know, two, three, 400 people, which is awesome because now they have that many more eyes and resources and, you know, experiences to lean on. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's it. That's a huge piece. So if someone is looking at starting their own certification program, what are some tips? Like what would be a sign that they're ready? You know, I, I get this question so much. So again, thank you for asking because number one, it's not as easy as people think it is. Mm -hmm. Number two, my first thing is, do you have intellectual property? 
is this yours or is this somebody else's? And it's hard. That's a hard thing to ask because I've learned bits and pieces of this along my journey. And I, I can't go back in my mind and figure out who was the first person. Like that was a really hard exercise for me was getting clear on, is this Natalie's intellectual property? knowing that many pieces of this are learned along the way. And so first of all, do you have intellectual property? Secondly, have you protected the intellectual property? And third, now start thinking about what that looks like for you. And, you know, there's a lot of different certification models out there and it's, it's a really small subset of the course kind of market, but figuring out what works best for you and how you and the curriculum that you're teaching and the market that you're teaching to how you set and design that up. It's step three. And most people come to me with that in mind. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not about that. You have to go back to step one, which is my advice has been the IP and making sure that you've got it. Number two, that you protect it. and then start looking at the way that you're going to set this up and design it. Cause the design and the program coordination is the fun part. Like that's the fun, creative part. And I get that none of it will matter. If you don't have the first two, <laughs> I found a lot of resistance in really getting very, very niche in my marketing until I had done all the IP work that I did. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You're, you're talking my language. I, I will uh, actually link in the show notes. I did a LinkedIn live last month called do you own what you think you own which is basically step one Mm -hmm. which is doing that legal due diligence to make sure you own your your intellectual property rights Mm -hmm. because there's it's tricky and it's not intuitive and I think that's so important because like for me the responsibility of having a certification company or an educational company in general was people are trusting me for this we'll call it a diploma or the certification or the designation, whatever that looks like for you and your company. Like they're trusting me and my brand. I want to make sure that this truly is backed and sound. The last thing I want to do is give somebody like a false. That's not what this is about. I'm not about volume. I'm definitely about impact. And so Mm -hmm. these were just critical steps to helping me stay in alignment with who I am and what I want. Yeah. I want to revisit something you said one about when you want to start your own, it's not easy. And also, what I've emphasized is that it's not a passive revenue stream. It's not set it and forget it. And you mentioned like that you're always adding and refining. It's not a little thing. So so to speak to you, like the fact that it's not a passive revenue stream, you have to stay on top of your game. Keep, keep moving yeah, forward. Especially for those visionaries that are out there. And trust me, I've worked with them and I've supported them actually my entire professional journey, whether it was in corporate or now they can move very, very quickly. So they can have an idea for a course on Wednesday and by next Wednesday, they could have it recorded and it could actually be done. The majority of the people that I hang out with can't really work in that kind of a quick start mentality, but it can be done. A certification is is way more thoughtful to me. It's super deep. And I don't think that that's unique to me. I think that that's the way that it should be because when they're buying that certificate, the hope of that certificate it just has to be a lot deeper that, you know, I think that there's just a lot more mental energy that goes into a certification than it does a course. Also the one-to-one or the one-to-many interaction in a certification is just so different than a course. I mean, even if people sell that support as a part of a course, there's a different level of transformation and responsibility that take place in a certification. And I hope that that's the way for every other, you know, certification company out there. Yeah. And to keep the value attached to that certification, mm-hmm. you have to make sure that 
it is keeping up with the changes in the marketplace. Oh. Um, otherwise it loses, it loses its value. Like, yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was a good thing to have five years ago, but you know, hasn't, yeah. hasn't progressed. So yeah. Yeah. A lot of work there. We have taken down every single question that has ever come into us since the very beginnings. It's just something that we have done. We are actually now re-recording everything. It's a huge project, mm-hmm. over 120 lessons, but it's through all of those questions that all of these 300 plus students have asked that are really informing where our gaps are. And so in essence, it's never really done. Mm-hmm, and right. we've had some really thoughtful questions that have come up in the meantime. And because I didn't have time or resources to re-record and pull all of this together, we would add trainings. You know, it, it'd almost be like a mini podcast episode. If they had a question that really fit, or there was a theme that was coming up, we would answer it and give access to all of our past students and current students, mm-hmm. because the market is going to change. I mean, what the pandemic has done to us has opened up a lot of HR questions that never were even thought. I mean, we didn't even think about these, my 15 years in corporate mm-hmm, much right. less now. Right. Right. So many of the listeners may be thinking, you know, they may not want to be a DOO, but they're thinking I need one. Mm-hmm. So what would a sign be in a business that they are ready for a DOO? Cause I know you do actually provide DOOs to clients. So what kinds of issues do they come to you with? Like, what are their pain points that they're like, oh my goodness, Natalie, help me out. Right. So if your business is scaling at a place, I mean, I think that we as independent, like solopreneur businesses, we can only do so much for so long. And you know, that the greatest pain point for a solopreneur is overwhelm. There are what we have defined as seven different, you know, pockets of your business And as one person or even three people, it's very, very, very difficult to own all seven. I mean, it's like being seven CEOs to one business and I've done it. It's a really hard place to be. Um, And so eventually you reach kind of that tipping point. And I I refrain from saying a breaking point because (laughs) while that happens, an operator can come into your business and it may not be a DOO, but an operator at some level can come into your business and offload the back end of your business. And so Um, being able to partner with you in those areas that are likely either being avoided, which is what happens when you're trying to be seven CEOs at one time. There are some of those that just don't get any attention and you just kind of cross your fingers and your toes and you hope nothing pops up or bubbles up. Those areas are likely in the area of financial or project management, (laughs) you know, those things, finding efficiencies is not important because the main driver, the place that we put the majority of our emphasis is on the marketing side, generating sales, finding clients, you know, looking for your audience. That's what a business owner does naturally. And so I tell people that when you feel like you're reaching the point of just capacity, we'll call it capacity more so than stress, which is Mm -hmm. likely a capacity issue. You know, that's a good time to look for an operator. And the second really good indicator is if your passion is on the sales part or in the brand identity part, just be honest with yourself from the very beginning that when you have resources, time, you know, energy investment to place somewhere, you are always, and you should always place it on the opposite side of your strength. So if marketing and attracting people is the number one place, then start looking for an operator. Now, if doing client work, you know, I've worked with plenty of attorneys too. If client work is your passionate area, then you need to do the opposite. You need to start looking for people to help generate leads for you Mm -hmm. and in the marketing space. So knowing Mm -hmm. where your strength is and hiring for the opposite is where we see 
the, the biggest value for us as operators entering into businesses. Oh, that's great advice. I've not heard it put that way, but it makes a ton of sense to me. Absolutely. I, I just know generally, you know, I'm, I'm known as the anti-DIYer. Like, I don't want to know how to do anything. Like, I know what I know. I don't want to learn else. And if there's some other skill that needs to be, uh, I need, then that's when it's time for someone who knows how to do that stuff to, to come yeah. for it. So, yeah. So this is the hourly to exit podcast, you know, where we talk about building a scalable and saleable expertise-based business. And so part of that is uh, two pieces, building exclusivity in your business, intellectual property, which we've talked about, proprietary processes, things that you own exclusively, as well as having a unique marketing position, and then also having predictability in your business, independence from the owner, which means having systems. So where in the hourly to exit journey does having a DOO fit in? You know, when we're scaling, like that whole scaling mm-hmm. piece is, mm-hmm. that's what really stands out to me, you know, mm-hmm. and every business has a different vision and a different mission, which is, is what they should have. You can't see this, but I'm like drawing this continuum yeah. that, you know, kind of goes up over time and people scale differently. They scale with different vigor. Some people have resources to scale faster. Some people have investors, some people are doing this themselves. And so that timeline is very different from business to business. But as soon as you start to experience scale, I believe that someone can stand up a business and operate it independently of any labor for Mm -hmm. as long as they want to. Mm -hmm. Something catches, whether their fire gets ignited a little bit more, whether their marketplace opens up and, you know, they start finding conversion easier, whatever it is for them. But as soon as you start that uphill ramp, you have to ask yourself, is this the kind of business that I want for myself? And if so, you're on the path to continuing to scale, knowing that team has to be a part of it, whether you like leading people or whether you don't, right. <laughs> that's just going to be a part of it. So when you start to feel like you're on that uphill uh, momentum, giving yourself the grace and space to time out and looking for support, that's going to be way better timed than making yourself crazy stressed out. When you get to the top of that hill, mm-hmm. and you look backwards and you say, you know what? I'm just ready to burn it all down. This is yes. way too much for me. <laughs> yes. We've all been there. Well, <laughs> I, I think that a lot of us have been there and that's not a comfortable place to be. That is awesome. Yes. So uh, continuing on our meta podcast here, you know, I'm a female founder of an expertise-based business that I'm growing to hopefully sell someday. You are the female founder of a service-based business. So are you building your business to sell someday? I never even considered that when I started. And, you know, I, I actually have old podcast episodes of me talking about the benefits of a lifestyle business. And we are currently building this business to move from a lifestyle business, which remember I started under the guise of legacy and mm-hmm. with the drive of being able to have a flexible business. Well, seven years later, my kids aren't babies anymore. And they don't need me to drive them anywhere. And I start to see, you know, at least the age of retirement coming a lot faster than I did seven years ago. And so through my, we'll call it aging journey mm-hmm. or experience, I have looked at this and have been affirmed and confirmed that this actually is a sellable asset. There are actually several sellable assets inside of this business. And I think that that's just the maturity of myself, the maturity of me growing as a business owner and having wise people like you to, to learn from, but we're absolutely in the process of taking this from a lifestyle 
business to selling either the whole thing or different pieces of it. And I am avidly learning about the different ways of being able to do that and different assets that are available to sell. And um, I, I believe that, you know, I was talking to my team recently in the next, you know, 10 to 12 years, I will probably be hopefully at that exit point. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. I love to hear that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, keep listening. Yes. <laughs> so while we wrap up a couple of things, one, you know, we believe in creating a more equitable economy here. And in particular, we believe that wealth in the hands of women can change the world. And so I am wondering if there is a person or organization that you admire who is helping us build a more equitable world. Yes. So I have been involved with lots and lots of nonprofits, both from a volunteer capacity as well as financially supporting them. But here locally in our area, we choose to partner most frequently with an organization called Kinetic Kids. And that is not necessarily financially giving to the next generation, but we partner with um, kids of all abilities. So mostly kids with disabilities And we help to give them an opportunity in the space of sports and recreation. So I almost get choked up every single time I talk about them. It's such a dear community that is available everywhere, right? I mean, there are kids that have these challenges and who never get the opportunities that our kids have had to grow up in sport and recreation. And it's, you know, mostly for the kids, but secondarily those parents who actually find a community of people as well. So that's our nonprofit of choice and where we spend a lot of time as a family. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That will absolutely be in the show notes. So I'm sure lots of exciting things happening at the Ops Authority. Is there something that you'd like to share with the audience about how they can work with you? Yeah. So I would say mostly right now, our capacity is spent on re-recording this content, but at the same time, upholding the standard that we have of, of excellence and um, delivery to our students that are continuing to come to us. But about four times a year, we host an opportunity for people to learn more about us. And we are always doing that. You can learn more at the director of That's where you can see a little bit more about the certification process. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, we have another company called the hiring authority, which is actually how you and I had come into contact, which is where we help businesses who are growing their talent, we help them to resource and staff on from a full service perspective. But that's, that's an area of our business that is really, really growing. And, you know, Mm -hmm. another place that, that your listeners may be interested in. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And so in addition to the director of ops and the hiring authority, is there any place else online where people can find you? Yeah. So we're on most social platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn. You can find us on Facebook all at the Ops Authority. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure. Lots of great information shared. Love it. Thanks, Erin. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Do not forget to check out the show notes for links to connect with today's guest and for the resources, offers, and organizations that we discussed. You can also find the links at hourlytoexit.com backslash podcast. If you got value from this episode, please subscribe. And I'd be so grateful for a review. I'm here to support your journey.